So, thank you all very much for coming. First thing is to check that the microphone works. Can you hear us in the back there? Very good. So that's the uh, first step along the way. Now, um, we're here to celebrate. I think I will stand up to celebrate better. <laughs> And we're here to celebrate Montec, um, and in particular, this book, which is uh, in honor of Montec. And um, this was supposed to be for his 65th birthday, but it being um, economists and um, about India, it was late. <laughs> so Montec is slightly older than 65 now. But nevertheless, we celebrate his 65th birthday. We can go on celebrating that for quite some time. Um, it's a book um, edited by Shankar Acharya and Rakesh Mohan. We'd hoped very much that Shankar could be here, but uh, a health problem prevented him at the last minute. And uh, Ruth Katumuri, who's co-director of the Asia Research Center, one of the uh, participants in the book itself, has kindly agreed to read something from uh, Shankar. Now, um, I'm going to uh, say just a few words about Montec, and then uh, I'll say one or two things about uh, some part of the book which I was involved in, and then the rest of the people here, or most of them, will say something about the part of the book that they were in, involved in, and we'll go um, Martin, after myself, uh, Martin Wolf, um, Isha Jajaro uh, Alawalia, Surjit Bala, and then Ruth on behalf um, both of um, Shankar Acharya and herself. And then, of course, what we all came for, it, we'll listen to Montek for about uh, 25 minutes or so. So we're trying to ration ourselves to about 10 or 12 minutes and then so that we get a good time for Montec and a good time for questions from you. So that's uh, the story. Now I am going to say something about Montec. When you get to uh, our advanced age, you can count things in decades. So I'll go very fast, I'll do things in decades. First uh, two and a half decades education, including uh, in Oxford, where Montec and I met uh, around 40 years ago. Um, then there was a decade in the World Bank, and decade in the World Bank, which some of us on the platform, I think a uh, high number of those of us on the platform, have experienced some time in the World Bank. And I think uh, in to congratulate all of us, none of us who spent some time in the World Bank ever believed that we would spend a career in the World Bank, and none of us have spent a career in the World Bank. For some of us, it's a cross that you have to bear indefinitely, having worked at the World Bank. You must therefore be a, uh, a irredeemable, uh, reactionary, um, ideological, narrow, neoliberal. But none of us believe that to be the case. And certainly, we don't, none of us believe that about any of us. So, but Montec, when Montec's somewhere, he changes things. Montec uh, changed the discussion in the World Bank, and he was a key player in the whole growth and distribution story, working particularly with uh, Hollis Chainery for some part of that time, but basically exerting a very strong influence as ever in a civilized direction. Then two decades um, with the government of India, essentially during the 80s and the 90s. And 
of course, uh, particularly associated in the 1990s with the reforms which many of us believe have given India a platform for growth which has already begun in a strong way and will continue for reasons actually which will be discussed during the course of uh, this afternoon for some considerable time. He then um, spent a, uh, only a third of a decade at the IMF but then he cre in that time he created the uh, Independent Evaluation Office and whilst the uh, IMF has gone around the world holding countries to account for a very long time, he actually started holding the uh, IMF to account to its own uh, shareholders and peoples it served in a very productive and cheerful and constructive but tough way. And then for the remaining two-thirds of this decade, he has been back with the Government of India as the head of the Planning Commission. That means the Deputy Chairman of the Planning Commission because the Prime Minister is ex officio the Chairman. So that's uh, a very fast run through an extraordinarily productive career. And throughout that career, there's been a very powerful emphasis on um, growth and making growth happen. Growth has a big part of the story of lifting uh, people out of poverty. But also in that story, a great sense of fairness and justice, because we all know whilst growth is fundamental to this story, there's so much more that can happen with growth if policies are sound, uh, soundly oriented, not only to the growth process itself, but also to the particip participation of people in that growth process. So that sense of, fundamentally fun of the fundamentals of economic policy driving the growth story, but at the same time, the importance of making policy in a way that uh, helps people participate has run right through what Montek has done. And in a very fast way, I've tried to give the way in which this idea of good economics giving uh, good outcomes for people and their chances in life has been what's driven Montek. It's what's driven a number of other people, but Montek distinguished himself in many ways from other people, and one of them is actually making things happen and not just believing good thoughts and providing sound analysis. So we all owe Montek a, uh, a very great debt. There's a, a paper in here which um, uh, I did with uh, Nandan Nilekani and Ruth Katamuri, which is about the green growth part of the story and looking at the way in which India can participate in the story of green growth, not only, of course, through that uh, being a driving force in India over the coming decades, which I strongly believe it will be, but also of India playing its part in international agreements and putting things together so that the world as a whole will set structures for uh, low-carbon growth. Low-carbon growth is the growth story of the future. High-carbon growth will kill itself, first on high, carbon, uh, high prices for hydrocarbons, and second on the extraordinary... Um, hostile physical environment it will create, and India, of course, being amongst the countries that are particularly vulnerable to a changing climate. Um, dependence on the um, water from the Himalayas, dependence on the monsoon, populations clustered close to rivers and close to uh, coastlines, 
um, expanding deserts. All of these are the kinds of things which, for India, if climate change is left unmanaged, would provoke uh, not only uh, great hardship, but also uh, very powerful movements of people, which would be extremely difficult to handle, both, both within India and across India's borders. That's the threatening side of the story. The positive side of the story is there's so much that India can do and so much that I believe India will do and so much that India is starting to do with its, uh, uh, what it calls its eight missions that uh, it's already putting into place, including, I won't go through them all, but one of the most important ones is a very powerful move towards solar and the creation <coughs> of um, 20 um, uh, gigawatts of uh, solar capacity by 2020 and to get it to being competitive uh, at delivery with other forms of production uh, of electricity by then. That's just one example, forestry and others, uh, energy efficiency, I could go on. So that's uh, our chapter in the story. Um, we're working here at the LSE and with collaborators, particularly with Surjit and, um, and others, on the future growth uh, of India. I don't have time to go into that uh, story, but this is a relationship, an intellectual relationship with the LSE, which is already deep and we trust will be getting still deeper over time. Um, Montek's professional life I've described. Um, I won't uh, go on about uh, the joys of friendship with Montek. I will um, moisten my own eyes and probably yours if I uh, did that. But uh, you can ask, uh, I speak now, 40 years of friendship. You can know, ask of no more steadfast and wise and uh, supportive friend than Montek. And I thank you very much for that, uh, for four decades and why not uh, four more. Thank you very much, Montek. He needs no introduction. He is Martin Wolf, and he is the uh, columnist on economics that we all read. Martin. Thank you very much. Um, I don't know whether that's true. Of course, I'd like to believe it's true. Uh, you may uh, wonder what I have to do with this uh, um, celebration. Um, well, there are two answers. The first is, as Nick has said, that uh, I worked at the World Bank too, um, and one of the, the, or perhaps the main thing I did while I was at the World Bank, which is uh, 40 years ago, between 40 and 30 years ago, as I was, I worked on India, in the India division, and in fact my first book was on uh, India, so that... Um, gives me some claim to be able to write about this fascinating country. And the second reason, which is more to the point, is though I had known of uh, Montek before I went to the World Bank in 1971, he was already a very famous in Oxford uh, uh, as a debater, um, president of the union. But uh, he was also, when I arrived in the World Bank, he was effectively my first boss. And uh, he was effectively because he was merely the deputy division chief uh, before he, uh, having only arrived himself about a year earlier. Such was the speed of his promotion. Um, and uh, he has been a friend of mine 
a close friend of mine and a much admired friend of mine ever since. Um, uh, he has quite astonishing qualities. I will not embarrass him. I don't know really why not, but I won't <laughs> embarrass him by reading out what I wrote about him in the uh, in the uh, in the book. Beyond the following words, Montek possesses a brilliant yet practical int intellect, astonishing fluency, as I'm sure you'll soon hear, trenchant wit, imperturbability, and not least kindness and decency. Apart from the Prime Minister, his close friend, uh, there is no Indian I know, perhaps no individual whom I admire as much. So that's why I'm sure I was asked to contribute. Now, what I was asked to, 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 to write about is really weird, almost presumptuous. And so I apologize to um, particularly Indians in the audience. Uh, but it wasn't my fault. Our mutual friend Shankar Acharya asked me to write a chapter which ended up as quite a lengthy exercise on India's role in the world. I very much enjoyed writing the piece. Um, it allowed me to think about what the world engagement of a rising power would feel like rather than of a declining one. That was a pleasant change. And, and I thought I could take at least vicarious pleasure in India's future successes. Um, now, I started with what I think is a, uh, and I, I can only summarize what's a very long and fairly complicated chapter. I insist you all go and read it, uh, along with all the other brilliant chapters in the book, of course. But I started with what I think is the most interesting feature. Obviously, India's economy is growing much faster than the world economy. Unless something goes very, very seriously wrong, uh, and the future is always unknowable, that is overwhelmingly likely to continue. Therefore, we are now in an era of rising relative Indian power and have been so now for two to three decades. It's a question of how you measure it. And the chances are, from what we see, and I've written about this, that this relative rise will accelerate. Um, uh, of course, India is not the only Asian giant of which this is true. It's still more true of its neighbor to the northeast, China. But uh, these two vast countries are in the process, quite obviously, of transforming the entire economic and political structure of uh, the world. I'm sure I don't have to persuade you of this. Now, this creates a particular phenomenon which I have written about in other contexts in what I call, and I hope you will understand what I mean by this, uh, it's not in any way invidious. We are seeing the emergence of what I call premature superpowers. And by that I merely mean countries that will have superpower resources and, uh, and reach over the next generation, but are still overwhelmingly concerned internally with the problems of development. Uh, for very natural and obvious reasons, simply because of their scale. And that is going to create huge challenges for them, obviously, and also great challenges for the rest of the world in, in accommodating that fundamentally new reality of the generation ahead. So that's the framework within which I set my discussion. Um, I then proceed to ask what should India's objectives be in, its far, in the world? What is it after? What should it be after? I'm afraid I'm uh, robustly normative in this chapter. Uh, and 
I argue that obviously, given that it is a development country, as is true of China, the overwhelming priority for India must be to raise the living standards of its population, uh, eliminate mass poverty, and become what I think the Chinese have once re referred to, in, at least in English translation, as an all-round prosperous nation. That seems to me clearly what sh India should be trying to achieve. And the aim of its foreign policy should be to seek a world in which that's possible. And that means uh, uh, it needs a world that is peaceful, uh, quite obviously uh, open, that is to say one in which India is able to exploit global opportunities, particularly in trade and investment in both directions, uh, uh, that manages the problems of the global commons, which uh, Nick has just talked about, and, uh, and obviously I think it has an interest, a wider interest, since it is a great democracy, in the maintenance and uh, promotion, if, if possible, of democracy. Um, I uh, discuss in this context uh, the reality of India's power and while I argue that over the next generation it's clearly going to be a rapidly rising power uh, and, and quite likely by the end of that period to be one of the greatest powers on earth it is not going to be powerful enough to be able to achieve these aims unaided and therefore it is going to have to play a massive role in the, uh, in the uh, m global multilateral with that, from that I move on to discuss India's assets uh, and I argue in essence that economically, politically, culturally and geopolitically uh, India is a country with some very large assets, an increasingly open market, a competitive source of supply of skilled labour, intensive services which is the basis of its economic success a huge pool of talented and innovative people world, working worldwide, a, a familiarity with English, um, of which the Prime Minister himself remarked, today English in India is seen as just another Indian language. I suspect that 100 years from now it may just be seen as another Indian language. Um, and, uh, uh, and of course I do believe that India has enormous prestige which comes from being the world's largest democracy. Um, I've already discussed what I think are the overall objectives of India in its international diplomacy and let me now conclude by touching on a few of the salient characteristics in some of the main areas. First, in trade policy. I argue that India's interests are overwhelmingly in a liberal global system. India's region is not a very attractive one from its point of view as a source of development and growth. I think there's a strong case for regional free trade in South Asia, but its neighbours are relatively poor and small. Uh, that means that the gains to them are going to be much larger than the gains to India of such opening. Uh, India's scale and location mean, I believe, that it has to pursue an open world economy, and I argue strongly, therefore, that India should play a strong and active role in international uh, trade negotiations and in the international trade system with that view in mind. And I think that is already largely accepted now in Indian policymaking. I then discuss the exchange rate and convertibility questions 
And I argue that over the next decade or two, uh, certainly the next decade, it makes sense for India to avoid the risks of full convertibility of the um, capital account, which is in fact has a policy that I think has served India relatively well, though India needs to, I think it makes sense for India over time to consider liberalization. There, this is, I think, a, a long-term objective I believe one of the India's primary goals, and I suspect Sujit Bala will talk about that, is to maintain a competitive exchange rate as part of that. Uh, it's the capital inflows that worry me and the pressure on the exchange rate that these are likely to generate. The third issue I discuss, which seems to me immensely important, is the future of energy policy. And that's quite a lengthy discussion. I'll just summarize by saying I'm very concerned personally that we're going to move to a world of neo-imperialism on energy policy uh, with an attempt to create essentially colonial type systems. And I believe that it is strongly in India's interest to avoid that development and to try to encourage that a more global view of global energy markets. I'm not going to discuss climate change, though I have a section on that because uh, Nick has already discussed it. And finally, on security, I take the view that uh, India is well advised to seek a quite a friendly relationship with the major powers, including the US, but it is also wise to avoid any exclusive relationship with any of them. And the very last discussion is of global governance. It is obvious that as a rising great power, India can and should expect to become, to join the Security Council, to have a much bigger voice in the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. But I make just two comments on that. The first comment is that I believe that India can be relatively relaxed about these matters since its rise is pretty well assured and uh, its influence will therefore naturally follow from that. And the second point I make, which is fairly obvious, and Montic himself personally is an animating force in this, is that merely having a bigger say is not enough. It's incredibly important to know what you want to say. And I think India has already made a remarkable effort, particularly in the areas he covers, in defining what it wants to say. And we want to hear more of this. In conclusion, let me say what an enormous pleasure it was for me to write on this subject. Very fascinating, very encouraging, and to congratulate Montek on having made, uh, reached uh, a remarkably distinguished age, but fortunately one that in Indian politics leaves him at least 25 years of active, <laughs> of active life ahead of him. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much, uh, Martin. Um, the, uh, I've actually also known Martin for 40 years from the same kind of period, and it's uh, always lovely to sit and listen to you, Martin, after all these years of sitting and listening to you. Even when I was trying to teach you, I had to sit and listen to. Um, but benefited greatly from the process. Now, the next introduction gives special pleasure. Um, now, most people in India know uh, who Montek is. Most people outside India know who Montek is. But for the, for the unfortunate few who don't know who Montek is, the penny always drops when I explain that he actually is the spouse of this very famous economist, Isha Judge Alawalia. Oh, that's who it is, then, uh, they say. And Isha and I have been discussing working on economics over 
uh, many years. Uh, it's been a great pleasure to me, Isha. Isha's written a, a key chapter in the book. Um, I haven't got time again to go into long introductions, but Isha is chair of ICRIA, the, Inter the Indian Council for Research in International Economic Relations, which is, uh, for many of us, the most influential of the think tanks, very serious level of analysis, but a very direct involvement in, uh, in international affairs. Many things, of course, uh, before that, professor at uh, leading universities around the world. Um, Isha, thank you so much for coming today. It's a great particular pleasure to have you with us on uh, this occasion of celebration. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Uh, this book is to felicitate Montague. We have been partners for 40 years, as many years as we have known. Nick, Martin, and Sujit. So it really feels good to be here on this occasion and express my uh, best wishes to Montague. Ruth, thank you very much for bringing us all here. Uh, when uh, Shankar Acharya and Rakesh Mohan, uh, co-editors of the book, uh, asked me to write on social sector and development, um, I readily agreed, uh, even though, as I would explain to you, uh, it's, it's a very complex subject on which to write for, for India. And uh, what I did say to them is that I would write on the perspectives from a rich state, the state of Punjab. Uh, the reason I was a little reluctant in the beginning was that for a long time in my career, I have really worked on industrial growth, productivity, macroeconomic management at the All India level. Uh, but five years ago, I had decided that I wanted to switch my perspective to looking at development from a state's uh, uh, viewpoint. And that's when I started my work on Punjab. And more recently, I'm also working on urban infrastructure, where I have to go down to the third tier and really interact with municipal corporations and municipalities. And there is actually a lot that goes on there, which has bearing on social sector development. And so I'm really very happy that I got this opportunity to uh, work on this uh, paper. Um, as you know, under our constitution, the social sectors, mainly health and education, are the concurrent responsibilities of the government of India and the state governments. Um, and the responsibility for implementation uh, really rests with the state governments. And today, the action on the development front really is in the states. The government of India can only do a facilitating function either through centrally sponsored schemes or through fiscal transfers or nudging and kicking them in the direction of reforms. But the work in these areas really has to come uh, from the state governments. And what you see is that there are really a number of experiments that are going on. And there are best practices that are emerging if you really look at that. And it's a very rich area for research. So I'm very happy that I'm here at the LSE sharing you know, what uh, um, 
I have tried to do. Um, and um, the, there has been a great deal more focus on social sector development in India in the past six years than in the preceding 60 years. Uh, and it's ironical because we were supposed to be planning for rapid growth and removing poverty. And you would think that that would mean removing poverty in its multiple dimensions. But in fact, I think somehow the energies of the government of India were so much focused on generating growth and directing it uh, in, in the right direction that somehow, somewhere along the way, if you look at the record from 1950 to 1980, we really ended up getting neither high growth nor very much social sector development. And we had a period of stagnant 3.5% growth per annum of GDP, which Raj Krishna mischievously dubbed as the Hindu rate of growth. In the 1980s, the government of India started a process of market orientation of the industrial and trade policy regime with a view to harnessing the productive potential of the economy. And indeed, this led to an increase in the average rate of growth to about 5.5% uh, in, in this year. And poverty, which had remained stuck at about 50% in three decades, came down to about 40% by the end of the 1980s. But fiscal profligacy of that decade and the Gulf War of 1990 brought about the balance of payments crisis. Economic reforms of the 1990s were directed at opening up the economy to imports and foreign competition, carrying further the process of domestic deregulation that had been begun in the 1980s and beginning a process of macroeconomic stabilization. Now, why I tell you all this is that the policy debate in India and policy discussion in the 1980s and 1990s was focused much more on creating conditions for getting out of the slow growth in which we were stuck in the preceding decades. And for poverty, a great deal of energy was spent on counting the poor and on what would be the appropriate direct poverty alleviation schemes, programs. But as India embarked on an upward growth path, expectations began to rise. And if I, I'll just very summarily give you the, uh, uh, the sense of the uh, move forward on, on growth. Last 10 years, well, I already mentioned to you 3.5% per annum for the first three decades after independence, 5.5% per annum in the 80s and the 90s. Last 10 years, the growth is 7.2% per annum. Last seven years, 7.8% per annum. If you take five years prior to the meltdown, 8.9% per annum. And in the last two years, 7%. And we are now looking to get back to 8.5% to 9% growth path, which 
is sort of now accepted. That is the ambition that seems to be feasible, realizable. And another feature of this growth has been that it's been led by the private sector and that some states are doing much better than other states. Now, two factors have changed the nature of the debate today. First, the sustained, the knowledge that sustained growth has a direct impact on poverty. As of 2004, 2005, poverty was down to 28%. Means that now we look at growth and what else? Growth and inclusion to see that we generate social development uh, and poverty elevation comes as a fallout of that. In fact, we have finally done what we should have done many years ago. Now that we have the self-confidence to know that yes, we are growing rapidly enough, we have redefined poverty to get away from a narrow definition in terms of calorie intake, to have a definition of poverty which looks at education and health. And we find that by that reasoning, 37% of the population is still poor. So we have a huge task ahead. And that means that the discussion is shifting more and more towards growth and inclusion, growth and employment, growth and better education, growth and human resource uh, endowment, growth and empowerment. And as growth really has picked up, the second factor why, what, which has shaped this uh, change in debate, as people are looking at 8.5 to 9.5% per annum as a realizable uh, goal, people of India want to be part of that. And the, the BJP uh, uh, found it out the hard way. They found out the hard way that India may have been shining at 8 to 9% growth, but if more and more Indians were not part of that growth, then Indians were not going to vote for that government. And we then had a coalition government which felt compelled to have as its slogan, inclusive growth. Uh, now, how far they can deliver inclusive growth, how far we think that they have been successful in what they are doing, since we are a democracy, the next election, people will speak again. But at least the uh, terms of the discourse are not growth alone, but growth which generates employment for uh, um, uh, more productive jobs. And these, this is the, the fact that the IT success is now very well known, means that each Indian feels that even I can do it if I have human capital. So how am I going to get basic education, secondary education, vocational education, higher education, depending on abilities, uh, uh, conditions, and all of that. And we have a civil society that further uh, uh, fosters that aspirations and tries to make the government accountable. Now, in that context, when uh, um, I wrote this paper that my basic message is that the center, the government of India, has come up with centrally sponsored schemes on primary education, on basic health, rural health, uh, national rural employment guarantee schemes, etc. And these are being delivered at the level of the state government. And the ma basic message that comes out of the paper looking 
uh, at it from the point of view of a rich state is that a great deal depends on the systems of delivery and a great deal depends on governance. And just the fact that you have a high per capita income state like Punjab, it does not mean that you know how to spend well. You may be number one in terms of physical infrastructure for schools, but because you have systems of delivery which are completely messed up because of political interference, uh, corruption, uh, uh, and, and poor governance, the in outcomes uh, which you will see from the paper, uh, I give interstate, I mean, across the states, both inputs into education and outcomes, learning outcomes. And in learning outcomes, Punjab is pretty much close to the bottom. And the, uh, um, again, the solution is not to say that if you have high per capita income, private schools will come up and fill the gap, because Punjab is an example where there are many, many unrecognized private schools, both in the rural and the urban areas. But when you have standards of regulation, standards, uh, the institution that set standards, that to, uh, undertake examinations, if those are corrupted and not functioning well, just having private schools is not a solution. I will, I'm only giving you a very brief preview because I thought I would use this time to set my findings in a broader context to tell you, to, to, to attract you to read uh, the paper, and I, I've just mentioned uh, uh, primary education. I have done a similar exercise on health and on gender deficit, where Punjab performs extremely poorly. Um, and what I have not touched in the paper, but which if you talk about social sector development, again is very, very important, is uh, uh, the uh, delivery of urban services. Today, India is uh, uh, heavily under-urbanized. We have only 28% of our population in urban areas. It is expected that if we carry on uh, on the growth path that we are following, within 20 years, this population will get 40%. And are we ready to provide the basic minimum urban services uh, to this population? That's another huge challenge of social sector, uh, uh, you know, both in terms of drinking water, sol solid waste management, wastewater treatment, uh, um, and, and even roads, uh, for that matter. So what I find now as chair of the Urban Infrastructure Committee, we are preparing a report for the Government of India, is that even here, at the level of the municipalities, there are some very, very good things that are happening. And the beauty of India is that even when at the all India level many things might cancel out and you won't begin to see the effect uh, for some time, uh, the truth is that today in the third tier of government you see a certain dynamism and a desire to move that you began seeing at the level of the state governments in the second half of the 1990s. So things happen in India. They happen slowly. They happen in a very argumentative context. They happen where everybody is screaming with their own opinions on what is right and what is not right. But what is very clear is that we've done something right. And it seems that we are moving ahead, perhaps not at as fast a pace as we are capable of, but at the same time, at a pace in which aspirations of 
uh, a great uh, uh, number of people are beginning to be realized and their frustrations are being voiced loud and clear and if this government does not deliver there will be another government four years from now to do it that is the strength of our democracy so I think instead of comparing our uh, 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 development uh, uh, performance with that of China what we need to do is really uh, uh, we don't have the choice that China has we can't cordon off areas and say we will develop this first and that later but we have to really count on our civil society and on empowering our people by giving them better education better health to see that then they will extract from the government what is due to them so thank you very much Thank you, Isha. Thank you so much. And that process that you described um, will be hugely advanced by the kinds of analyses that you bring uh, to the table. And one of the great joys of India, those of us who've worked in India for so long, those of us, those of you who had the pleasure not only to be working in India but to be born and grew up in <coughs> India, will recognise the strength of. Um, the kind of analysis that Isha has set out here in driving the kind of processes that she draws attention to. So thank you so much, Isha. Thank you. Now, next in line is Surjit Bala. Surjit is many things. Um, Surjit uh, and I also have known each other for, I don't know exactly long, but at least three, probably four decades. And we spent a long time together uh, in um, the end of 1981 watching uh, the most excruciatingly boring draw between India and uh, the England in Bangalore uh, just after um, India, the, the Indian spinners had destroyed uh, England in, uh, in Bombay. Of course, all the rest of the wickets were completely flat and all the other matches were drawn. Um, but we sat and in, entertained each other and then my very first seminar that I organized when I, became, when I came to the LSE in 1986 was on his wonderful book which probably too few of you have read called Between the Wickets which is a very powerful econometric analysis of cricket data over a very long period of time um, Sujit is uh, I think the only person on this platform maybe the only person in the book who, well Nandan Nilekani is in the book but uh, with the exclusion of Nandan uh, who has actually worked seriously uh, in the private sector. I don't count journalism, uh, Martin, in, uh, in that. Um, you've got to risk your own money in, uh, in this definition. But um, to all these things, but deep down, and he is a great columnist, uh, he interviews some of us on Tough Talk, his TV program, but deep down inside, there's a very serious economist. And that's who we're collaborating with in our work on uh, growth and inclusion. Uh, full of ideas, full of detail on the data and uh, Suji, it's a great pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Uh, you know, four decades seems to be uh, the operative uh, term here. I've also known Montek and Nisha uh, for four decades. Uh, it's a very, very close and warm friendship. and. You know, there's an aspect about Montek that I want to talk
talk about that has uh, clearly affected me a lot. Um, you know, I've, as uh, I'm, I am, a, or I'd like to think of myself as a serious economist, and I've done a lot of research. Um, and it's amazing as to how much of that um, Montek should be a co-author. And that's what I want to illustrate. Um, he isn't a co-author of any of the research I've done, but in, in reality, uh, he is. And I want to give you a short story, uh, a true story, as to how Montek has gone about the work of uh, being the preeminent economist, preeminent technocrat, uh, preeminent policymaker in India. And the story relates to, and this has to do with the second part of uh, uh, my uh, presentation, which is on, on growth in India. But the story has to do with um, back in 1996-97, I had just come back from the US, uh, from a country where interest rates were much talked about and uh, where the prevailing level of interest rates was something like 2 or 3%. And I go to India and I find out uh, that there really are very enormously high interest rates, uh, real interest rates in India uh, at that time, and this is 96, 97, was somewhere in the range of 12%. And <clears throat> I just couldn't understand what was going on. And it turned out, you know, so obviously one went and talked to Montague, and it purely casually, and I think it was in Hong Kong at the time of the East Asian crisis in September of 1997. Um, so I said, you know, Montague, I'm I really worked up about this, and I, I just don't understand why and how India can have such high real interest rates. And he just dropped me a hint, um, and he said, listen, um, go look at small savings rates. And um, I didn't know what small savings rates then were, which I promptly went and did. And that spawned a whole uh, series of research. Um, and in the end, um, as I will discussed the recent acceleration of growth in India, uh, it was precisely because these interest rates were brought down. Um, Monte couldn't do it then, but subsequent governments did do the task that Monte had envisioned. And if you will, in 2003, uh, the RBI came out with a report on small savings instruments and reached the same conclusion that Monte had implicitly reached uh, six, seven years before. So this is how policy in India uh, takes place. Uh, if you have an idea, uh, whether it be on the economy, on war, on poverty, uh, or on cost, uh, and you want to do research on it, just talk to Montek for five minutes. And it's amazing how your research uh, will progress towards uh, uh, completion and, if you will, insights. But that, those insights actually do come from uh, Montek. And so thank you very much, Montek, uh, for being a very, very great friend and perhaps even a greater advisor. Um, it's something I've always cherished. And to this day, if I want to do some research or I'm thinking about something, I have a little chat with Montek. And uh, it does uh, affect what I do. Now, if the effect is bad, then I'm sorry. Then this is not all. Uh, but uh, anyway, now. The story, as I mentioned earlier, also has a bearing um, on what has happened to growth in India. And Isha talked a little bit uh, about it. Uh, let me just, uh, you know, what the paper that I present uh, really looks at three puzzles uh, in the Indian economy. 
and you'll see the heavy hand of Montaigne uh, in all of those three puzzles. Not, not, not the first puzzle. Uh, but anyway, the first puzzle being that in 1980s, uh, there was a sudden acceleration in growth in India from the Hindu rate of growth of 3.5% uh, to something like 5, 5.5%. And how did this happen? Uh, none of us could point to, uh, at least at that time, uh, as to why this has occurred. And you know, there's been a whole lot of research uh, on trying to explain uh, the, the acceleration in GDP growth in India. The second puzzle <coughs> is about, and here's where the heavy, heavy hand of Montek is very much present, is about the major reforms that took place in India in 1991, uh, led by Narasimha Rao and Manmohan Singh, who's chief architect, uh, and it's not a secret, was Montek, uh, is Montek. And uh, we found out that there was barely an acceleration. Actually, there was an acceleration in GDP growth in India uh, from 55 to 7% for three years. And then we reverted back to our new normal then of 5.5%. So how come you have the mother of all reforms and really no growth acceleration? So that's the second puzzle. And the third puzzle is 2003 onwards, we've had a growth rate of something like 7.5%, 8% per annum now for the eighth year uh, running. And uh, nobody I know can point to any specific policy uh, that uh, the government has, either this one or the one before, uh, has clearly uh, brought about, has clearly uh, sort of implemented to give us this acceleration. So that's the third puzzle as to what happened. So, and in, so in the paper, this is discussed in detail, I'll just give a summary. The first puzzle is really not much of a puzzle. And uh, what happened was that the Hindu rate of growth uh, was only observed during the 70s. And that was the time it was articulated from the mid-60s, if you will, uh, when Raj Krishna came out with it. Uh, in the 50s and 60s, India grew at a fairly healthy rate of something like 4, 4.5%. Uh, but the whole world declined uh, in the 70s uh, because of the oil crisis in 1973, oil prices quadrupling, and then doubling in the late 70s, the associated stagflation. And what happened was that India also uh, was affected by it, and our growth rate declined. And then we went up uh, starting in the 80s, as the rest of the world did. There was another factor responsible for, if you will, the acceleration. And this is, you know, in the, in the 60s and 70s, we talked about this in the literature, it's not talked about enough now, is a reallocation of labor from low yielding or low productivity agriculture to high productivity industry. And just the reallocation process, if you will, gave us the, uh, the additional one, one and a half percent of GDP growth. And that explains, if you will, why we went from 4%. Uh, to five, five and a half percent in the 80s. The second puzzle, what happened with all of these reforms and uh, not much acceleration? Well, actually, these reforms were quite productive. Uh, they set the stage for what is happening now, but also yielded a very quick acceleration of GDP growth from about five and a half to seven and a half percent per annum for three successive years. Then something happened in the world, and if you will, something happened in India, and this is where 
the beginning meets the middle, uh, the interest rate story. Inflation collapsed. Basically, inflation had been collapsing elsewhere in the world. Uh, but in India also, uh, the inflation rate collapsed starting in about 95, 96. Down to, when I say collapsed, uh, down from a level of 8, 9% to a level of 3 to 5%. Um, the policymakers uh, did not quite adjust uh, immediately to it. Uh, because they felt that this was an aberration and uh, really we should be going along the old path. Hence, the 12.5% uh, interest rates that you could get on small savings. So these are government-defined uh, uh, instruments uh, and were used to finance the deficits of the states. So you could quite see how the Ponzi scheme worked. And this is where I went up to Montek and said, uh, what's happening with interest rates? And he said, look at small savings, which is how the states were financing themselves by getting money and giving 12.5% interest, the deficit and the rest be damned. So essentially, you have 12.5% on small savings. Your lending rates are 16 17%. Obviously, there has to be a margin. And your inflation is 4%. Now, is it any wonder that India reverted back to 5, 5.5% GDP growth when you are having uh, enormously, enormously large real interest rates? That started to change. And between 1999 and 2003, interest rates in India declined by 500 basis points. That's five percentage points. Real interest rates in India declined. And that, in my view, helps explain the acceleration of growth rate in India from 2003 onwards. One other aspect of the Indian growth story, uh, and again, Montek's heavy hand is there, is in terms of the exchange rates, where it was recognized that the exchange rate in India was heavily overvalued. There were two quick uh, devaluations in, I believe, July of 1991, 10% and then 10% again within a period of three days. And then there was an overall reform in 93 where, if you will, we reached at a, the uh, appropriate exchange rate. And since then, that real effective exchange rate has been kept broadly fixed. And that has been a real, real asset uh, to India and to its competitiveness. So to coming to the end of the story, that basically you have 2003-2004 onwards, you have real interest rates in India that are competitive with the rest of the world. In my opinion, just a shade too high. You have exchange rates that are competitive and, in my opinion, fairly appropriate. And you have a growth rate that is exceeding 8% per annum. And, uh, you know, Isha said something about that we really shouldn't compare ourselves with China. Uh, but she also mentioned uh, that you know, we were argumentative Indians, so I don't want to let go of that. I think we should very much compare ourselves with China. And indeed, this is a time, if ever there was a time you want to compare yourself to China and to show how democracy, if you will, works and can yield you a higher growth rate, the time is now. because. In my view, or in my opinion, the China is very close to the top of its growth curve. And from now on, uh, especially with 
exchange rates in China are becoming slightly less overly mercantilist, um, that the growth rate in China will begin to decline somewhere from about 9.5-10% to something like 7.5-8% of GDP growth. And in India, the growth rate will continue to accelerate, uh, perhaps not as fast as China's did, but clearly accelerate from about 8 to 9.5-10. And so what's the story? that Martin Wolf, he's uh, already written, I was going to say, he's going to write. But what's the story of the next five, ten years? We'll suddenly observe that here's a democratic country uh, which is growing the fastest uh, in the world. And uh, China, a not-so-democratic country, uh, will be growing at somewhat lower rates. So this is a time to celebrate um, the policy initiatives that have been taken and, you know, if it hadn't been, if you will, one can quite say that uh, given the role that Montague has played in almost every start or every change, indeed in my essay in the book I say that, look, macroeconomics in India started with Montague when he came back in 1978. Uh, and I think, you know, there is more than a, a kernel of truth there. Uh, essentially modern ideas started to invade the public space and I think we are beginning to see the results of a lot of the policy, not just insights, but the initiatives that Monty helped take to put India into this position of a democratic country growing at the fastest rate in the world. Thank you. Surajit, thank you very much. Three or four years ago, many of us were noting that the growth rate had accelerated and wondering, would it last, reminding people before they got carried away um, that it had been actually quite a short period of very rapid growth. Um, that was three or four years ago. Now I think, having seen India come through uh, the crisis in the rest of the world, and uh, having further studied, in particular, the kind of analyses you have done, and Isha was speaking about why it is that that growth rate has accelerated, and it seems to be in much more secure grounds, both in terms of longevity, its resilience, and getting to grips with the underlying reasons for really thinking, not believing, you don't do believing, thinking that uh, India's growth rate uh, can and will be sustained at the kind of levels that uh, you're describing. So thank you very much, uh, Surajit. Now um, we have um, uh, Ruth Katum Dr. Ruth Katamuri, the uh, co-director of the Asia Research Center, who's going to speak on behalf uh, of Shankar Acharya and of herself. Um, Shankar um, was one of the two, uh, with Rakesh Mohan, uh, editors of uh, this volume. Uh, he, with his uh, extraordinary uh, elegance of style, but firmness of purpose, managed to uh, get us, he and Rakesh managed to get us to the end uh, point a little later than they had in mind, but anyway, we, uh, we got there. And uh, Shankar has sent um, uh, a message. He was hoping to be here right up until a couple of days ago, and we miss him, of course, and send him our very best. Um, please, uh, uh, Sujit Montekisha, could you could you do that directly on our behalf? Of course, we've written to him in any case, and uh, 
Shankar has been Chief Economic Advisor to the Government of India. He's the Honorary Professor at ICRIA, the institute that uh, Isha shares. Uh, very well known as uh, a deeply thoughtful analyst of the Indian economy, one to whom many of us go for advice. Uh, Ruth is the life force not only today, but the life force much more generally in uh, uh, the Asia Research Center. And thank you very much, Ruth, not only for your contribution today, but also to the chapter in the book and for uh, kindly agreeing to read from Shankar. Thank you. As Nick said, we were hoping to get uh, at least one, if not both, um, both the editors of this book. <coughs> Rakesh Mohan had to be um, at a meeting in Seoul with the Bank of Korea. However, he sent the short message, which I'll read out to you, and I quote, just to convey all my best wishes for the event today. I'm truly sorry that I'm not there. And I'm also sorry to hear that Shankar is also missing the event. But I am with you all in, in spirit. Um, Shankar was hoping till the last minute, even on Saturday after he went to see the doctors, he sent a quick email prematurely that shows how much he wanted to be here with us, saying, I'm coming. It was only Sunday night that I saw the message that he's not able to come because his doctors have advised him not to travel. However, he kindly wrote this piece for us, which I'm going to read out. Um, from Shankar, remarks for the LSE event. Dear friends, I really wish that I could have been with you all today. Unfortunately, I had to cancel at the last moment because of a health issue. My regret is amplified greatly on two counts. First, I'd been looking forward to returning to these lecture halls after some 47 years. In 63-64, I had spent a very enjoyable and stimulating year at LSE as an occasional student, a peculiar student category offered at LSE in those days. Wandering around these lecture halls, listening spellbound to Lionel Robbins, Karl Popper, Michael Oakeshott, and other great social thinkers of that period. Alas, I shall have to postpone my reverie for another time. Second, I dearly wanted to be present at this occasion to honor the extraordinary contributions to economic policy making to my old friend and former colleague, Montek Singh Alwalia. Putting together this volume, India's Economy, Performances, and Challenges, was very much a reflection of the warm affection and high regard in which we all hold Montek. I'm so glad that several of the distinguished contributors, including Nick Stern, Martin Wolf, Ishar Alwalia, and Surjit Bhalla, are present and participating in the panel discussion. So many complimentary remarks have been made about Montek on so many occasions. Yes, he is a brilliant policy economist and the finest ethnocrat of his generation that India has produced. But above all, he's an exceptionally nice person who it is a pleasure to be with. So I miss not being here today. I have been asked to offer a few remarks on the macro policy dimensions of the India economic story. To keep these remarks really brief, let me just table a few broad propositions which are fleshed out in the relevant chapters of the book, including my own. One, India's macroeconomic record in the five years, 2003-04 to 2007-08, was the best she has ever enjoyed for any, for any consecutive five years since independence in 1947. 
economic growth was at its fastest, inflation was at its lowest, as were fiscal and external imbalances, and aggregate savings investment were at their highest. You couldn't ask for a better macro story. <coughs> Two, and more arguably, this great macro record was at least partly a result of one orthodox policy, successful fiscal consolidation, and two heterodox policies, soft targeting and the real exchange rate through partially sterilized in intervention of surging capital inflows and a cautious approach to cross-border financial liberalization. Without these three policies, the macro record would have been appreciably weaker. Three, whether because of these policies or other factors, India's aggregate savings investment record jumped from around 25% of GDP in the early noughties to about 35% in mid-decade and was undoubtedly a crucial contributor to the growth acceleration. Note to graduate students, there is a lot of good research to be done on this exceptional transformation. Fourth, as Martin Wolf has pronounced, India has had a good crisis in 2008-10. Economic growth slowed only modestly to 6.7% in 2008-9, recovered to 7.4% in 2009-10, and is set to exceed 8% in 2010-11. True, inflation has been uncomfortably high, and the fiscal deficit has ballooned to record levels, but sustaining the growth momentum has been a real success. It's another matter that much of this was due more to a burst of populist spending in mid-2008 and less to finely honed fiscal stimuli by government in response to the global crisis. Looking ahead, the key medium-term question is, can India recapture and thus surpass the 9% a year growth burst of 2003-8? The government believes she can and will. I also think it is possible, but I'm less sanguine that it will happen. My doubts rest on the likely frailty of policies. One, necessary economic reforms in areas like energy pricing, labor laws, agriculture, education, and urban infrastructure have been painfully slow, so the resulting productivity gains will be correspondingly low. Two, with the combined fiscal deficit once again around 10% of GDP, the recommitment to fiscal consolidation has to be strong and sustained. This seems unlikely given the growing penchant for expanding entitlement programs and low likelihood of repeating the kind of increase in the tax to GDP ratio achieved in 2003-8. Three, the earlier commitment to heterodox monetary and exchange rate policies seemed to have weakened. Four, the world economic environment is likely to be less supportive than in the pre-Lehman years. It's hard to believe that the more subdued new normal after Lehman, Greece, etc., will not negatively affect India's medium-term growth trajectory. Friends, thank you for your patience. I hope I have whetted your appetite to get hold of a copy of the book. There's a lot more in it than the few thoughts on macroeconomic policy that I have just catched. Have a wonderful day, Shankaracharya. I'm not going to take any questions on this paper itself, but um, Montek will take if you have any questions, because he's already read this. So, <clears throat> uh, and now I, I'd like to say a few a few words on my my behalf. My claim to um, the operative forty year knowledge of Montek is through the law of transitivity, i.e., through Nick, because I've heard so much about him. Um, whenever Nick, so many good things about him whenever Nick talks about Montague. Having had some chance to know him directly more recently, my admiration for him has grown. 
Montek, we're very grateful to the great work that you and various authors of the book, many under your leadership, have achieved for India's growth and development in the last 20 years. The last 20 years have been extremely interesting in India. The next 20 years will be exciting with the challenges, expectation, and potential in the development of a young nation. Others have mentioned various issues, but uh, I think one of the key things for India is also its young population. And we look forward to your continued leadership. It is my special privilege to be a small part of this publication. And India had had a very early start in the engagement of environment sustainability, with Indira Gandhi having been the only PM to have attended the UN conference in 1972. The awareness stickers released after that had inspired me while I was a girl in the school toward a lifestyle for, for, a sustain, for sustaining the planet. Now India is slowly catching up in its commitment to tackle the climate change issues in India. I'd like to thank Nick for giving me this opportunity to be a small part of this on this paper. We'd like to thank um, the various participants, Isha for having rearranged her schedule, Martin for having reached here in time in, in the middle of a very crazy day, and Surjit for, for being here with us. We're also happy for the select audience from the policy and business community for being here on the first day after a bank holiday. <coughs> I'd also like to thank uh, the people who've been helping us, Kevin, Keith, and the student volunteers in the middle of their exams who have helped to organize this event. And finally, I'd like to thank Montek for accommodating the time to make it possible for us to have the celebration here today. And now it's over to Montek to give us a uh, Ruth, thank you very much. Um, Montek has had a very lengthy introduction, um, but now I have all the warm-up acts uh, are over, and it's over to you, uh, Montek. It's a great pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Nick. Thank you, Ruth, for organizing this event and thank all the other participants for all the very nice things that they've said about me. You know, uh, it's very nice being felicitated by so many people. Uh, it's that little bit of a statistician in me that reminds me that this is not a random sample. I mean, <laughs> people who write fresh for you are by self-selection guys who like you. Still, it's, it's nice that they do that, and it's nice that they say the nice things they do. Thank you all very much. Now, you know, you can see from the discussion that uh, India is a place with a lot of active debate, and I think those of you that end up reading the book, and actually I'd recommend to all of you that you should buy a copy, which I see is strategically located. There's a sale desk outside. I think you'll see that it really covers virtually everything that is currently in the public debate. Now, uh, I mean, there were two roles I could play. One is I could just answer all the questions that are going to come up as a result of what the panelists have said. But I think what Nick wanted me to do was uh, not so much to talk about the issues raised by the individual authors, but to just set something looking ahead. I mean, where's, where's India going and how does it look from the perspective of someone who has a, a ringside seat uh, in terms of uh, the making of policy? I mean, there's no question that we, we feel very good about the growth record that we've seen. We also feel very good 
that having gone through two exceptionally difficult years for the world economy, uh, the Indian economy has, it's obviously been affected. I mean, after four years of 9% growth, we went down to 6.5 and then 7.4. Actually, the 7.4 was just released yesterday. The preliminary data for 2009-2010 was 7.2. But so now we go from 6.5 to 7.4, and we're hoping that in the current year, that is 2010-2011, we will be around 8.5. Uh, the good news actually is that the last quarter of 2009-2010 was about 8.6. So the, the prospect of doing 8.5 this year looks reasonably, reasonably assured, assuming we have a good monsoon. In fact, this is the first year that the IMF is actually projecting a higher growth for India than we are doing ourselves. I mean, for the last five years, they've always pitched the growth rate about 1 to 1.5% lower. So we're feeling good. Uh, we're also keeping our fingers crossed because I don't think that I share, although I don't share all of uh, Shankar's uh, pessimism, I mean, he's, he's one of the best pessimists to know. Because, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, everybody should, whenever you feel good, you should sort of have a second look. And I think I would advise, it's, un, I mean, Shankar's, issues Shankar raises are very real issues. And I think the government's very aware of them. That's why we keep both fingers and toes crossed. Uh, that this growth rate will actually be sustainable. Uh, one of the things one must remember is that uh, I think economists classify a country as fast growing. If it grows at 7% for, I forget whether it is 10 years or 15 years. And actually, if it's 10, we've just about made it. But if it's 15, then we will make it in the next two years. So in that sense, India's transition to a fast growing emerging market economy taking a longer horizon than the last five or six years is in a way yet to be established. But I put my money on it that if the cutoff is 7%, it will certainly get established. And I think the emergence of India as a rapidly growing country uh, uh, in the world stage is obviously of huge importance to us because it holds the prospect, holds forth the prospect of substantial improvement in uh, the living standards of 1.2 billion people. I think it's also important for the world. Uh, a large country like India, a democratic country with liberal values, pulling its people out of poverty and visibly prosperous is creating a huge stakeholder in a well-functioning, open, global economy. So the success of India is important not just for India. I think it's important for the world. And of course, uh, we happen to be in a, a part of the, uh, the globe which is actually doing very well. I mean, Asia, in fact, is doing extremely well, has been for a long time. China has been a leader in this for quite some time. India now catching up. East Asia did very well, slowed down a bit, but probably catching up again. So. This is something, uh, from our point of view, which is very positive. Now, how do we, what do we worry about? Well, very broadly, I think uh, one issue which is quite legitimate to raise, particularly given the highly uncertain state of the global economy, it perhaps looks unduly uncertain right now because we're seeing the unfolding of sovereign debt crises in Europe, uh, but, I mean, I'm assuming that one way or the other that will be taken care of. Uh, but still, even if it's taken care of, nobody is projecting rapid growth uh, for the industrialized countries for quite some time. 
Uh, in fact, the real issue is whether you will have uh, a disorderly uh, resolution of these problems or an orderly resolution. I'm pretty sure that the world is wise enough to end up with an orderly resolution. But even an orderly resolution doesn't hold out the hope of rapid growth in the industrialized world. And so uh, there used to be a mindset that uh, developing countries are actually piggybacking on the growth of the developed world. Uh, so if the developed world slows down, is it inevitable that the emerging market countries will also slow down? I do believe these two are linked. I mean, all this nonsense about emerging market countries having decoupled is just not true. Uh, but you know, the linkage is a lot related, I think, to uh, shorter term phenomena. It's possible to argue that longer term growth rates of emerging markets, underlying structural growth rates of emerging markets, have got a bit delinked from the underlying growth rates in industrialized countries if you take a supply-side decomposition of growth. I mean, after all, in the old Bob Solo sort of approach, I mean, growth is caused by growth of uh, inputs, technology, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, there are demand-side decompositions which make one worry what's going to happen to where the exports going to come from, et cetera. But I think what has happened in the emerging markets, certainly in Asia, certainly in India, is that on the supply side, what is needed for an economy to grow, which is uh, a, an attitude towards savings and investment, a capability in the private sector, and enough flexibility for the private sector to act, uh, steady improvements in human resource development. These are things on the supply side that are actually provide the room for countries like India, which are far behind industrialized countries, to actually do a catching up. So, uh, I mean, at the moment, we are hoping to reach 9% growth next year. And that's when we begin what is the 12th five-year plan period. And the Prime Minister has already said that we should target for 10% in the 12th plan period. So, you know, whether it's 8% or 10% is the real issue. I think the, the lower end of the spectrum has been very significantly raised. And you know, many of these long-term projections about the rise of India as a more, I, I don't like the term superpower, I mean, it's just not true. Uh, the rise of India as a serious player would be a much better term. It's virtually assured if India grows at 8%. So anything we do over and above that, just make it a little bit more serious. So that's, a very, that's the key thing that we need to keep in mind. Can we do that uh, in a situation where, in the industrialized countries, uh, growth is obviously going to be lower? I think we can, and I just want to spend two minutes explaining why, and then that can come up in the discussion. It is quite clear that exports will not grow as rapidly as we might have thought uh, under the old normal, and we are factoring that into account. So the issue arises that if export demand is not going to be there, uh, where's the demand going to come from? And the answer is it has to be a more domestic demand-led growth strategy. Now, India, in any case, was much more domestic demand-led than some of the other countries in the region. From, from our point of view, the demand to support this more rapid growth, remember, we're, aiming, we're not just aiming at sustaining the average. We want to grow faster uh, at a point when exports are going to do worse. That demand has to come from investment, and it has to be investment in infrastructure. Because on the supply side, 
it is the poor quality of India's infrastructure compared not just with industrialized countries, compared with China, compared with other East Asian countries, which can be said to be a drag on achieving higher growth. So we need the infrastructure, and if we can organize it such that that happens, that will provide a very substantial demand-side stimulus. That infrastructure cannot be public sector infrastructure because, like other countries, we also have fiscal deficit uh, problems. Now, fortunately for us, the bar has been lowered on that one <laughs> because, you know, it used to be that everybody was very worried that, you know, India has a public debt to GDP ratio of 80 percent and it has a fiscal deficit that could be 9.5 percent. But since the industrialized countries have exceeded both those numbers very substantially, uh, it's unlikely that the world looking at India would be worried, especially because in the industrialized countries, the numbers are worse and the growth rate is going to be between 2 and 3 percent. In India, the numbers are better and the growth rate will be between 8 and 10 percent. So the debt dynamics of the Indian fiscal deficit is very, very good. But it has to be built around a framework in which we do reduce the fiscal deficit. So actually, uh, the government intends to do that, uh, but it does mean, therefore, that if we want a big increase in infrastructure investment, that has got to come from some form of private investment in infrastructure or public-private partnership. And that's exactly the strategy that we are following, whether it's telecommunications, power, roads, ports, airports, whatever. The strategy is that the public sector will do what cannot be sort of uh, plausibly used to attract private investment. But wherever private investment can come, we will facilitate, encourage it, and maybe even uh, leverage it through public resources. I mean, for example, I have in mind roads where uh, toll roads are being built. The tolls will not actually pay for the entire investment that is needed. So you need a capital subsidy. But we give out, we offer a capital subsidy on a competitively bid basis. So you, you have a policy that says here is a road which we estimate will cost X percent. We're willing to have a capital subsidy of 40% of the cost, uh, and we invite competitive bids. And in that bidding process, in some cases, the bids have been negative in the sense that the investors give you the money uh, to have the concession. In others, they bid for a capital subsidy, and that's, that's the way it's working. So uh, that would minimize the burden on the fisc. Uh, but, you know, if you're going to have high investment and low exports, it's going to have the consequence of a larger current account deficit. We factored that in, too. A couple of years ago, we had a, virtually a surplus on the current account. We now project that for this year and next year, we may have a current account deficit of between 25 to 3% of GDP. And the question is, can we sustain a current account deficit of 25 to 3%? I would say unambiguously yes. Uh, India would be a good bet for anyone investing in. In terms of foreign direct investment, the inflows are already at the range of about $25 billion a year. Uh, the net inflow is less because Indian companies are investing abroad. But if you count uh, the possibility of capital inflow and the possibility of foreign direct investment, I don't think India will have difficulty in attracting investment to, uh, to cover a capital uh, a, a current account deficit of up to 3% of GDP. 3% of GDP is actually only about something like $36 billion. 
Uh, and we have in the past had capital inflows much above that. It's very important in this that the international markets are stable and not spooked. Actually, we are less concerned about what the growth of industrialized countries will be. I mean, whether it's 2% or 2.5%, we're more concerned about uncertainty. Because when there's uncertainty, I mean, paradoxically, everybody invests in the dollar. Uh, although they spend the rest of the time saying the US has the worst macro balances. <laughs> Whenever there's a problem, the dollar appreciates as it has done in the last few months against the euro. But assuming stability returns and people are looking for long-term assets, uh, my guess would be that India would be a very attractive uh, destination. Obviously, this has an implication for government policy. And the government policy must welcome foreign investment and present a picture of sensible macro management. I think the government's aware of that, and that's exactly what we plan to do. Now, a couple of problems. Uh, well, let me not talk about the infrastructure. There are lots of problems with infrastructure, financing, implementation, and we'll work those out. But I want to talk about inclusive growth. Uh, it was mentioned by Isha, mentioned by other people also. It's very, very important. Uh, it is our view in India. You cannot have an inclusive politics and not have an inclusive development process. Actually, even if you don't have an inclusive politics, people want to have an inclusive development process because governments have to, have to carry legitimacy, whatever the political system they're running. But in a system where you have frequent elections and you're constantly going to be measured by what the electorate thinks, uh, your development process better be inclusive, otherwise you won't be there. And I think governments know that very well. I want to qualify that, you know, in academic discussions, uh, uh, the tendency is to equate inclusiveness with poverty reduction. There's no, I mean, uh, we are all, we all spend time in the World Bank, and I think the World Bank has this great big sort of uh, uh, plaque or something on the, on the wall that's saying the only objective is reduction of absolute poverty. That makes a lot of sense for an aid agency because you're, you're trying to mobilize sort of a moral opinion in favor of aid and I commend that approach. But you know for a country where you're running it from within, poverty alleviation is only one dimension of inclusiveness. Uh, the government of India is not, is not only being asked uh, what are you doing for poverty? We are actually being asked, yes, what about poverty? That's very important. But people also say, what about inequality? I mean, is there too much inequality? That's a re relevant issue. What about the shares that accrue to different groups? We are socially a fragmented society. So think of caste groupings and the scheduled castes and the scheduled tribes are two very, very important parts of our society, which have been historically excluded from a lot of benefits. Now, if you, if you define inclusiveness from the perspective of a particular group, then you know, that inclusiveness could well mean not so much uh, poverty alleviation, uh, but rather uh, a proper representation all along the income spectrum. In fact, technically, it may not even mean a reduction in inequality in the sense that if you, were, if you took a group identity point of view and you had to choose between a society that was more equal, but the groups were not equally distributed along the spectrum, and a society that was more unequal, but groups were equally distributed along the spectrum, it's quite possible that you would say that from a group point of view, the second is a juster society. 
Similarly, you have issues of regional variation. I mean, states, uh, every state, if we are going to grow at 9%, is every state going to grow at 9%? And if it's not, that's a political issue. We have problems within states. I mean, people say, well, you know, the state's growing. Maharashtra is doing very well, but what about the backward parts of Maharashtra? Actually, we, in the Planning Commission, we are now looking at district-specific data to be able to see what's going on. Now, the interesting thing is, and of course, there's gender balance, there's rural-urban. Now, ideally, it is possible. It's possible to conceive a growth process in which you improve on every single one of these dimensions. And obviously, that's what you would like. But in practice, it's virtually impossible to ensure that you will improve on every single one of these dimensions. And actually, it's a shifting target. No sooner you've achieved some success in one area, uh, failures in other areas will come forward. So the issue of inclusiveness is a lot more complicated, in my view, than is very often made out in the development literature. And the government of India has to deal with this uh, in the best way it can. I mean, there are no ready mantras, except I would certainly say that we know that, you know, expansion of infrastructure geographically through the country would make a huge difference to the ability of different parts of the country to benefit from the growth process. It's unfortunate that the expansion of infrastructure is not viewed as a pro-poverty uh, reduction instrument. Uh, the approach usually is that you look at schemes that are more directly affecting poverty. But I think, the, uh, I mentioned infrastructure earlier, I believe that serious efforts made at expanding infrastructure and not just spreading it to the areas that are currently growing fast, but spreading it to the more, more remote interior parts of the country, this is eno enormously important. Certainly health and education, which Isha referred to, I mean, these are two of the most important elements of inclusiveness. And yet they're not income. I mean, this is not inclusiveness in the sense of share of income. This is, is the system generating the production and provision of access to public services in a manner that would enable people to maximize their own human development capability and to access all the goodies that come? Uh, with a more open society and a rap more rapid rate of growth. This is a huge challenge, and actually we, we do recognize it. I believe there is also a lot of progress in this area, but again, it's a shifting target. I mean, 10 years ago, we didn't have enough schools. Now we almost have enough schools, and all the kids are enrolled, but the dropout rates are quite high. And many people would say the dropout rates are quite high because the quality of education is not so good. And now we need to recruit more teachers, and we need to improve the quality of teachers, and we have to ensure that the teachers attend school, which goes into the whole issue of governance. And finally, pedagogic techniques have to be greatly improved. So, you know, I tell people that the United States is worrying about these problems. So don't think that by something we do tomorrow, or day after, or even in the next five years, we'll have fixed the educational system. Uh, even when we have a per capita income of $20,000, we would be well advised to be worrying about the educational system. But we need to get out of a situation where literacy is low, basic skills are not being taught. And I think that we are probably reasonably well on the way to doing that over the next 10-year period. And much the same uh, can actually be said for health. We've been late in this. I think that's true. 
we should have done this 10, 15 years ago, and we would have seen the benefits now. One of the problems in the soft sector areas, it's very different from dealing with market distortions. I mean, if you have a fixed exchange rate, it doesn't take very long to make up your mind to make it market determined. And you know, within two months, people have got used to it. But if you decide that I am going to do something big on education, I think you better check 15 years later whether it's had any effect at all. And I think this is a very important, uh, I keep getting told in India that you're just spending money. Well, you have to spend the money. I mean, that's the first requirement. But you need to keep watching, uh, and you need a lot, of, uh, a lot of observation and feedback and willingness to learn from mistakes and things like that. So these are really the two broad objectives. Uh, I just want to mention four in two minutes. I probably have two minutes. I mean, are there challenges? Of course there are challenges. I mean, everything can be a challenge. But if I were forced to list four uh, challenges that India will have to address, in order to maintain this high growth within the framework that I've already talked about, which includes an element of fiscal uh, responsibility. One is clearly energy. I mean, uh, it's important simply because it's becoming more expensive, it's scarce, uh, et cetera, and there's the other side of it, which is the climate change, which is my, uh, one of my points here. I believe that uh, we, we have a lot of things we have to do uh, to make our energy policy rational. Uh, we have prepared in the Planning Commission an integrated energy policy paper. Uh, hopefully, it is now up for the government to... The government has actually accepted the propositions in that paper, but they now have to be implemented. And the biggest problem is aligning energy prices with global prices. We made some steps. We hope to do more. But to my mind, that's very crucial. Second is the structural change that is going to come through urbanization. Uh, our estimates suggest that maybe in the next 15 to 20 years, uh, the, an urban population currently around 300 million will become 600 million. And actually, in terms of provision of infrastructure for urban population today, almost half the urban population does not have the infrastructure that it really needs. Uh, by the standards that one should expect uh, of urban areas. So really, against 150 million people who are reasonably well served, we need to serve 450 million, i.e. another 300, um, uh, no, more than that. We have, we, have to, we have to serve 300 plus the 150 that are underserved, so we have to serve 450 million, and in a period of 15 years. Humongous task poses a lot of real issues, both of financing and on governance. So this is one uh, uh, thing. Two, two other points, which are not India-specific, but which are, I think, very important for India. One is water. I mean, water, in many ways, is going to be a bigger challenge than energy. Because I think, deep down, people know that you have to pay for energy. Deep down, people do not believe that you have to pay for water. So it is extremely difficult. I mean, if, if water is scarce, and you have to incentivize people to use it efficiently, and you're not willing to price it, then either you put in place a command control system which is completely inconsistent with what we know we can do, or we have to have a totally different approach to water management. Big challenge, again, uh, all I can claim is that we, we know about it, we are worrying about it, 
And we're even going to write a paper on it and discuss it in the National Development Council. But it will pose, it will pose I think, uh, very fundamental issues of both policies, politics, governance, and even issues of constitutional responsibility, the relative role of the center in the state, which in this area is a bit uncertain. And finally, of course, climate change. Again, not an India-specific issue, uh, but uh, like everybody else, we're worrying about it. We have national missions for climate change. I mean, the way we look at it is the, the world, the uh, uh, ideal solution to climate change can only come from a globally agreed and just uh, distribution of burdens. This seems a little far from reality at the moment, but we are chugging along and constructively entering into those discussions. We are not taking the view that until that happens, we have to do nothing. So we've ourselves set our own targets, targets in terms of emissions intensity of GDP, uh, set up expert groups to look at the transition to a low carbon economy. And you know, a lot of what has to be done for climate is actually what has to be done for energy anyway. So if we succeed in rationalizing energy policy, we will actually have done quite a lot uh, to address the climate change issue. But this is a long-term issue where I'm sure that it will take more time uh, before we, we really know what needs to be done. Well, those, those are the things looking ahead. Uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity, Nick and Ruth, and thank participants for, once again for all the nice things said. It's really nice being here. Thank you. Montek, uh, thank you, thank you so much um, for that, and uh, we'll um, we're all seeing in your vision of the future the the hard practicality, but optimistic that things can be done approach that you've uh, brought to so much of of your work. Um, I can't just res I can't resist just adding the observation that. Uh, water and climate change are very close to being the same subject. Climate change disrupts um, largely through water or its absence in some shape or form. You know, storms, floods, uh, droughts, des desertification, sea level, sea level rise, disruption of the monsoon. and All these things are very tightly uh, bound together. And I don't know, Montek and I are actually colleagues now on the United Nations Secretary General's uh, advisory group on climate finance. So it's uh, extremely nice to be a collaborator again, uh, Montek. Thank you so much for that. Now we've got about 15 minutes for questions. I, I plead with you to keep your questions uh, short. I'll take uh, them in blocks of three and let's hope we get at least uh, two blocks. That depends on how brief we are in our answers. So uh, question please. I'll, um, Lady in the front yeah. here. There's a mic coming uh, for the benefit of us. Uh, sort of. I think uh, corruption was only uh, very faintly alluded to with the sort of corruption was only faintly alluded to uh, when you talked about the failure of delivery systems in India. Um, does increased uh, governance or more governance or better governance mean more scope for corruption and what percentage of India's GDP gets lost in 
corruption. Thank you. Um, gentleman right behind you, if you could just pass back the microphone. Um, talking about the second dimension of inclusiveness. Um, hello. Um, the second dimension of inclusiveness and a system built on rights. Um, and you alluded to China. I think three or four of you did. Um, what is your view, uh, Mr. Montexing-Aluali, on the active role that's played by the state in central and local in many parts of India in, through land appropriation and the provision of security and police resources in undermining those rights, um, with rights being violated as a byproduct of growth in terms of land appropriation or security enforcement um, in order to facilitate industrialization. Um, Thank you. The gentleman just here. My question is about uh, growth of urban population. Uh, the former president of India, Dr. Abdul Kalam, had coined a phrase, Pura, providing urban facilities in rural areas. That is one solution to the growth of urban population and uh, difficulty that we are already experiencing in coping with the growth of uh, cities. What is government policies about encouraging population to stay in rural areas and providing the facilities like education, health service in rural areas? Thank you very much. Um, uh, well, we'll get four ladies just next to you, and then we'll try and get one more round. Thank you. I believe that um, there are many traditional knowledge systems in India. We generated income in the past, but have been forgotten and are still relevant in the present and the future, especially in the field of healthcare and uh, training of uh, mind systems and education, etc., which would lead to better human resources. Uh, in, even in the short term. So I'm looking at how government is looking at policy concerning education and healthcare through traditional knowledge systems. Thank you very much. We'll try to get one more round in um, afterwards. So I'll, I'll take those four questions first and then I'll try to get, if we're very efficient, one more round of four questions. Uh, can we give the floor first uh, and foremost to Montek? And then if anybody has anything to add, I'll ask you to come in, because I, perhaps I'll make the hypothesis that most people came here to listen to you, Monte. <laughs> Probably false, but uh, well, very quickly. On corruption, I don't think it's an India-specific problem, so any proposition on how to bring it down anywhere in the world is something we should be taking seriously. It is a problem in India, we recognize that. But my own view is that, by definition, I mean, Increased government can lead to corruption, but not in improved governance. So the whole idea is what kind of government do you have? And I think transparency, uh, putting in the sunlight into all these, make a huge difference. So uh, it's a long haul, but that's my answer. Land appropriation, that is, that is an issue. It has, it has not uh, been a big problem earlier, but it is now perceived uh, part of the problem is that, you know, uh, in many of, uh, it's most severe actually in uh, forested areas where you have uh, what we call Adivasis, that's the original inhabitants, uh, usually tribal communities, where, you know, basically the property right is ambiguous. Uh, 
they don't actually have legal property rights. We recognize their right to the usufruct of the forest. Now, if you recognize their right to the usufruct of the forest, and of course you say that, look, if anybody has to be displaced to allow some whatever mining activity, etc., to take place, then they must be compensated for the loss of livelihood. And that, I don't, I, there are frequent, I frequently am told by people that the compensation they should be given is very often delayed and not given. It. And those, I think, are legitimate issues which the government should really do a much better job. But they're not, they're issues of, which are failures of implementation. But I think very often what happens is that uh, they're not actually, uh, it's not satisfi satisfactory to be simply relocated and compensated for the loss of use of it. Because very often they, they have a deeper feeling that they just don't want to be moved. Uh, and I mean, this becomes an issue of the nature of property rights uh, where, where there's a lot of ambiguity. I've talked to a lot of, uh, I mean, civil society people and I think they do not take the view that no rational exploitation of mineral resources uh, is the answer. But what they do take the view uh, that the present system that we've been working with is not always fair and never transparent in this matter. And that the government should really put in place a completely different regime. Uh, and a regime that involves a lot more consultation I think that's substantially true, and uh, we're working towards that. Now, whether we'll be able to do it or not, uh, we'll have to see. But basically, uh, political, I mean, the Constitution provides for uh, consultation in, with the local communities on any effort to bring about uh, uh, some kind of exploitation of natural resources. And I think this can be done. But to give you a very simple example, uh, the, the compensation that the state gets from the mine owner is the royalty on the mineral. Uh, in the present situation, that belongs to the state, not to the district or the area from where the mines come. So typically, there's a very substantial royalty payment which is traditionally goes into the state exchequer and is probably being used to do all kinds of useful things perhaps elsewhere. Now, it would be a relatively simple thing if a state, this is all in the realm of state government, nothing the center can do. But if a state government were to say that, look, we want to have this mine developed, we think it's going to be wonderful, etc., and I'm going to make sure that X percent of the royalty is going to flow back into this area, I think you would create a completely different willingness on the part of communities to join hands. But, you know, it takes time to, to do that. Uh, traditional medicine, of course, I mean, yeah, we, are, we have a department of traditional medicines. Uh, there are people who prefer them. Uh, there are certain diseases in particular where, I mean, they're, they're much more effective uh, than others. But let's, they're not the solution. I mean, the real solution to the health problem is sanitation, clean drinking water, and immunization. Uh, if we did those three, 80% of our health problems would get taken care of. Uh, so the, you know, those have to have absolutely top priority. Sorry, the bringing facilities to rural areas. Oh yes, the uh, former presidents. The, you know, I, I'm not 
I mean, the, some experimenting of that kind is being done, which is, but I don't view that as the answer to urbanization. I mean, we traditionally used to take the view that somehow urbanization is an unpleasant thing. And the way to prevent urbanization happening is to deliver better facilities in rural areas. Certainly, we should have better facilities in rural areas. But let's be clear about it. India is not going to be the only country in the world not to urbanize. And a lot of these areas where so-called better facilities are being provided are just rural areas that are going to become urban. And that is actually the solution. I mean, it's not that we're going to, we shouldn't be having a, a megalopolis after megalopolis expanding. Uh, but many small, many of our villages, are act, large villages are actually, could, be, could qualify as being very, very small urban areas. And I think that, that is, that is part of urbanization. And in many ways, I think IT, uh, which allows decentralization of a lot of economic activity, uh, would permit a kind of growth where uh, urbanization can take place without necessarily geographical concentration of very large numbers of people uh, in small areas. So that's, that would be my answer. Again, this is something uh, entirely in the realm of state government. If a state government wanted, to use its money this way, it's totally free to do so. And perhaps, you know, one of the points that uh, I want to make generally, and I think Isha referred to it, is that, the, you know, there are a lot of micro good examples in the country. And uh, I feel that uh, even in the area of urbanization, small communities uh, managing to tackle these problems. There's a lot of good, if you searched for good news in terms of a list of examples, and maybe Isha would like to respond on this, but you know, I think it's something people don't focus on enough. Maybe not now, let's have a okay. second round. If there is time at the end, I will come. Thank you. Um, I'll take three, but very short questions, please. Gentlemen, right at the front. Hello. My uh, question is, since India aimed to be a global economy, so why not encourage more Indian firms or companies to have collaboration with world-class firms or companies? Because as a businessman, we find businesses merger, acquisition of strategic alliance. The minute we have a strategic alliance with another company, we draw their attention, uh, uh, powers, expertise, knowledge, and strength. So I think in the past, when I was in India, it was all indigenous, indigenous, indigenous. But I think we should now move to having collaboration with world-class companies so that our progress and can be expedited. Gentlemen, just directly behind. My question is to Montague. You have mentioned in your list of challenges, four challenges. I would like to add in that one, we will be delighted if you can add the development of rural challenges and we are watching everyday news over here, which is affecting the poor governments in the country. Almost 35 to 40 percent of the Indian map is covered by the next lights nowadays. And if those areas, if you look at the pictures of Jagdalpura where all these incidences are happening, that looks they are hundreds of years behind within this developed states like Punjab, which I traveled in April, I was very much delighted and very much shocked when I was traveling to Eastern UP and Jharkhand state. So what government is planning? And government looks a bit handicapped to deal with such challenges. No actions, nothing, even political differences.
references are there. And I was shocked when last April I was in jail for a could coffee, actually. Uh, one short half question, please. Yeah. Half the students were divided that they are supporting the Naxal movement, half the, and they are all on the government exchequer, they are getting the studies. There is no will to win this situation. What planning commission or what government is going to do? Uh, one last question right over there, the gentleman in the red check. Sure. Two very brief points. One is uh, in producing an increasing number of graduates, but what are the what are, how high is the quality uh, of those graduates? And the second point is on uh, innovation in the economy. And obviously there's continual criticism of China not being able to innovate within its economy. It's now got its indigenous innovation strategy. How does India compare? The, the, the first one was the quality of uh, graduates. The second one was... But the second one, the second one. Hi, thank you. Um, good afternoon to the panel. My question is, um, speaking to uh, many Indian businessmen and people, they say that our growth rate, 8-10%, is actually not, it doesn't encompass our growth rate, is actually a lot more than that, because we have a very well-functioning, I don't know, parallel economy. A lot of the <laughs> business is done off the books, and we can probably trace this mindset back to when our uh, personal income taxes were, were around 80-90%, and now we have some of the lowest income taxes and the government policies are very encouraging, yet this mindset still exists and people still, uh, uh, they do business off the books. And um, since we are in this sort of race with China competing and are, are, are around the world, we want to have a high uh, growth rate. Is this something, as the planning commission or as economists, you think about, try to uh, quantify, see how big it is, and how to enforce sort of a mindset change and try to capture that in our actual growth figure as much as possible? How do you sort of deal with this? Monte. Well, let me go in reverse order. You know, I, I know businessmen often like saying that, and I'm sure that there's a lot of uh, what you might call economic activity that's evading taxation. It's not just in India, everywhere. The GDP data is not made up by looking at uh, uh, tax data. It's made up on the basis of a hell of a lot of production information. I don't see any reason to believe that uh, the GDP growth is much more than it is. You know, it's quite possible that there's a, there's a what is called the illegal economy. Again, it exists everywhere. But basically, both of them, so the economy may be larger than people think, but the growth rate uh, is not actually necessarily larger. They're probably both growing. I hope that the illegal economy is growing at a slower rate. And my guess, by the way, is that it is. Uh, if you ask these same businessmen, how many illegal things were they doing earlier compared to now? Uh, <laughs> they probably would claim much fewer. So that would suggest that you know, it goes the other way around. Um, on the question of quality of grad, that's a big issue. I mean, uh, you, can al you can always have, you can have graduates, but how good is the quality of graduates? And, I mean, I, uh, we are, we're sort of aware that we need to do a lot more in that area than we are actually doing. I would say, by the way, that uh, you know, there's a difference between uh, academic quality, uh, graduates from the quality of graduates from the point of view of a strictly academic stream, 
and the effectiveness of the education in making you able to function in the commercial space. I've talked to a lot of uh, you know, companies that are doing extremely well, uh, and what they tell me is that many of the people they recruit sort of lack last mile skills. Uh, so if you're thinking, are these graduates capable of simply sliding them in uh, seamlessly into whatever, a software company or something, they say they're not. But they are surprised at how effective uh, a three-month uh, internship course, which strengthens the skills that they specifically need, how effective it is. Some of our best software companies that are doing extremely well are not anymore actually recruiting from the IITs. They're actually recruiting from second-tier colleges, and they find that uh, with in-house training, uh, they're actually able to bring them up to par from the point of view of the commercial use. So I think we have a huge gap in terms of quality. If you're thinking of producing first-rate universities, I mean, postgraduates of very high capability, etc. The gap in terms of people who can run modern businesses is much less uh, than people think. Um, you said something about innovation. Was that generally innovation or? Actually, there's a lot. I mean, again, it's a very important issue, and it keeps coming up. Everybody is aware that we must allow for a lot of indigenous innovation. There are some very interesting examples of indigenous in, uh, innovation, particularly related to the use of IT, for example. I mean, microfinance, micro banking, micro insurance. Uh, the use of telephones, for example, in all kinds of areas which has led to a great improvement in productivity. Uh, but whether what we probably need is a lot more innovation in government processes. Because I think the use of IT to re-engineer government processes uh, to actually increase productivity has happened much less, in my view. Uh, than it should. And that's uh, Mr. Sam Petroda, who is the advisor to the PM on innovation, working exactly on that. I mean, how to move away from a culture where promoting IT means buying computers, uh, and then everybody uses it to send emails to their kids, as opposed to re-engineering the entire process in order to get efficiencies. So I think that we do need to do that. But we recognize, you know, on the issue of rural areas, Naxalites, yes, that is a new, that's a threat that has come up right now. I'm a little surprised that you are depressed at differences of opinion. If you are going to subject India to the test of are there different views, we're going to fail. Uh, <laughs> the only way we can defend that is to be proud of it. I mean, unless you concede that the differences of opinion are, are a strength of this society, uh, you're not going to be persuaded. I believe, by the way, that they are a strength of the society. I mean, no sooner the Home Minister says something, somebody else expresses a different view. And <laughs> all the TV channels, most of which you can now get in London, have all the talking heads expressing all the views on it. Actually, it, it's a letting off of steam. It's an opportunity to, uh, well, it, that's democracy. And so if you like it, I mean, it's a good thing. But I agree with you that the government has to come up with 
uh, how does it bring development into these areas that have been left out? You know, I must mention that to some extent, the, the rise of the problem has occurred because these are, these are forested parts of the country where there's very little normal communication. And people see that huge development is taking place elsewhere and not taking place here. Some people are, make, uh, are taking advantage, if you like, of this. And the, what you call the Naxalites are not actually interested in bringing about development. I mean, if that's all they wanted, they would just get elected and make sure that they bring the development. They are actually interested in basically destroying the fabric of the Indian state, which is completely different. Parallel to that, there are a large number of people, very constructive people, who are saying you're neglecting development. And I think you need to res we need to respond to that, and we're going to do that. But at the same time, it is, it is a, there's a security problem which has to be tackled. There's also a development deficit which has to be bridged. Uh, how well we do it? Well, the least one can say is you have to allow a little bit of time to elapse, because it's a very tough, very tough issue. But you know, we've had problems of this kind elsewhere in the country, and where there have been areas where there, there have been these problems, and they're not there now. So I don't see any reason why, uh, why we should be uh, despondent. Um, sort of collapse. We have collapse. I mean, I'm not aware of any major Indian company, uh, foreign company, that isn't operating in India. And a lot of the Indian companies are quite happily collaborating. Competition is what's going to push them to do it, not me telling them. Uh, we've created a competitive environment. If these guys survive without the collaboration, good luck to them. If they don't, they will go and find collaborators. I, I was trying to say the government should encourage because the local company can sit down to the practices which we don't approve. But even the world class company they have to maintain their image internationally, they will not be engaging in the practices which are known to happen in India the local people. No, no, but you know, if people are engaging in illegal activity, we should just crack down on that rather than counting on global firms not engaging in them. So my point is that if you're running a proper system, which is A, competitive, and where the rules are enforced, if that's the only thing to do, the rest will happen automatically. And actually, it is happening, let me say. Uh, I, I'm just going to give the last word to Isha, and I'll say a very brief thank you, and then you can go outside, buy the book, and talk to some of us who can stay. Thank you, Nick. No, I just thought it was important for me, since a number of you raised some questions on the whole urbanization front. We do have 60% of our population right now dependent on agriculture, and to some extent it has been because there's been very slow uh, industrial growth and people have not moved. And when they have moved, because the government has never really looked at the urban uh, uh, planning aspect, we've really developed a whole lot of slums in some of the uh, bigger cities in the country. But now, for the last five years, the central government has started a national urban renewal mission under which they are transferring funds straight to urban local bodies and encouraging them to do urban 
reform at that level. For example, if there are no property taxes, they should levy property taxes, collect them, and uh, have proper financial accounting, and a, a slew of measures that are uh, pointed out. And what Montic was referring to was the fact that in the course of my work on the Urban Infrastructure Committee, we have been traveling around uh, a whole lot of small towns, middle towns, big towns, uh, big cities in the country. And I find today a degree of dynamism at the urban local bodies level, which we had never seen before. And these municipal commissioners are energized by some money that is coming. They are being forced to do reforms. And you see some best practices, including ways of bypassing the land acquisition problems by farmers coming together and uh, you know, setting up development companies and developing urban areas on their land. And uh, a colleague of mine and myself are writing once a month on uh, best urban practices of this kind in the Indian Express. So if you uh, visit the Indian Express website, you will actually see some very innovative things that are happening at the third tier of, of government. And since I believe that urbanization challenge, and we are going to get from where we are 28% to 40% within the next 15 years, and all these multiple challenges will converge on the urban one, it's not good enough to take urban facilities to the rural. It is really to connect urban with the rural and not to see them as urban versus the rural and not to regard rural as the have-nots and urban as the haves. I think this mindset has to be broken. And if you develop urban infrastructure where you're going to have industrial development with 8 to 10% growth, you will actually see a, a pattern of development coming which could really begin to address this major, major challenge that is coming our way. I thought I should mention this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Isha. Um, I, it remains to me to thank you. Thank you to Isha, to uh, Martin and uh, Ruth and Surjit. Thank you, Ruth, for uh, making uh, all this possible uh, today. Thank you to the uh, editors, uh, Shankaracharya, Rakesh, Mohan, who couldn't be with us today. But most of all, thank you to Montek for all you've done um, for your friendship and allowing us to celebrate with you today. Thank you, Martin. <laughs>